Hey, everybody, it's Jacob Newton here, professional hockey player and mental health coach, advocate, all of the above. My good buddies over at Sports Epreneur and I did a podcast together about a year ago. And ever since then, we've been keeping in touch, creating content podcasts now. So if anybody out there is interested in doing the same, having their own podcast or want some type of content creation, don't hesitate to reach out to those guys at Sports Epreneur. They are willing and able to help you out. And after listening, don't hesitate in leaving a review. And then you'll get much more access to all of my content across the Sports Epreneur platform. Hello, everybody. It's Jacob Newton here again with another episode of the RAV podcast, Raw, Authentic, and Vulnerable. And I'm just going to pass it straight over uh, to my guest today and allow him to introduce himself. Thanks for having me on, Jake. So this is Eric Cusin. I'm the founder of an organization called We're All a Little Crazy, crazy in quotes, so I don't want to offend anyone by the name. Um, it's also our campaign name is the Same Here Global Mental Health Movement, which is based off an American Sign Language sign. And very much our organization is based on going through a lived experience that brought me to this spot. I know this being a sports podcast, and a mental health podcast, the fascinating thing was I worked in professional sports for 15 years, never thought I'd have anything to do with mental health. And then the way that life experiences come in and throw curveballs, uh, that's what brought me to the place that I'm at right now, where I didn't go back into professional sports after I healed with my journey that I went through and instead went down this path of, of working more in the mental health advocacy side of things. Okay, very nice. And, and first and foremost, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Uh, you know, you and I made our connection, I would say, I don't know, six, seven, eight months ago, something like that. And, uh, you know, we've kept in good contact. I continue to follow your content. And I just believe, you know, this message that you're putting out there, you know, that the same here, it's just, it's mind blowing to me. I think that this, the stuff you're doing, the stuff that this organization is doing, this is the stuff that the world needs. Everybody needs to understand that, again, it's not the one in five, right? It's the five in five. And so what was the process like for you and, and your partners in kind of getting this going? Was it, was it easy, you know, to kind of talk about this stuff? Or was it a little bit more rocky than maybe people might perceive? Yeah, you know, the, well, I'm sure we'll get back into it in terms of the meat of the story itself. But when I began healing, which was after a two and a half year journey of misery mm. where I wasn't healing, um, I shared my story uh, publicly on, of all things, LinkedIn, right? And, and most people would not turn to LinkedIn as their means to share what they had been through. And uh, the reason I did was because I wasn't a social media person. Like, the, the, this all started happening to me at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And then my path of being in a really bad place lasted through the middle of 2017. So you think about the growth of social media during that time period, I was oblivious to it because I, I was laying in a bed just staring at a ceiling the whole time. So when I came to and I wanted to share my story for the purposes that you hear everyone else say they want to share their story, I'm not going to be as cliche and say, if only I could help one person. I think that's a little BS when people say that. Yeah. Um, you want to help a lot of people, right? Like, So my thought process was, I don't have Instagram. I don't have Twitter. So those aren't possibilities. LinkedIn might be the place where I can make a splash and really help people because it's a professional um, community on there where if I can talk about it in the context of what I lost in terms of my work skills and capabilities, 
granted there's more to it than just work, right? There's also the life capabilities that I had lost and just cognitive abilities, but that that might resonate with some folks. And so the way the math worked in my head, it was like 2000 followers that you're connected with in my case in the sports industry, specifically on LinkedIn, whatever algorithm is in place. Now it gets fed to 200, 250 people of those 2000 and 20 people look at it and be really interested and 10 people will actually reply and want to have a conversation. That's a great start to help 10 people, not just, I want to help one person. Right. So that was my math going in and I, and my friends are digital marketers. So I, I asked their advice on what's the best way to put this up. And the funny part about the story is again, for two and a half years of, of not being a part of the world per se um, and all the changes that had gone on, they kind of laughed at me and they were like, yeah, everyone's doing things with video content now and everything's like quick hits. And I was like, well, I was like, that's not the way that I communicate. I, I'm, I'm long form. I like to share my stories. And I think the other piece of it was if I did something in short form, the intricacies of how involved this topic is and, and, and how much you need to explain in order for people to relate mm-hmm. and how much we'll get into this when we talk about social media right now and whether or not all the talk is actually good or not right that people are saying we're having my thought was i can't put like a short video out there being like i had ptsd it's when you have five of these 20 symptoms or you know for two weeks or more like who that's not going to resonate with anyone so i wanted to put you know the name of your your podcast you know raw authentic you know vulnerable i wanted to put myself out there in that way and so i wrote a um piece that was about a 35 minute read. Um, and the way I knew that is because I didn't know what medium was the website and my friends quickly introduced me to it and they put it on medium and what they found by putting on medium, that it was going to take 35 minutes to read. <laughs> so they came back to me and they didn't even read it. That's the funny part about it. Like these are my friends who knew what I went through and they're like, dude, we love you. But like no one's sitting around. <laughs> yeah. 35. So, um, against their, their better judgment, I, I kind of met them in the middle in this way. I, I, I told them I'll put my telephone number at the top. So if people don't want to read the thing, they'll just see the, the, that the beginning parts are about, you know, this crash that I had and that if anyone, you know, wants to have a conversation about it, they can reach out to me, which was either, you know, I laugh now when I tell the story, it's either the smartest or the dumbest decision I ever made. Um, because you're putting your personal information out there. Right. But, it, the first three days, it gets read 150,000 times. So it just starts getting passed all over all over LinkedIn. And then I got over 400 calls from as far as China. Wow. Um, and and the, the reason I know it's 400 is because I still have the spreadsheet that I, that I, I kept from, um, from that experience. And the other piece before I go into the foreign story was Darren Ravel, the sports reporter, reached out to me. Now, keep in mind, this might not, a timing is hilarious. You know, this is before Kevin Love, before DeMar DeRozan and their stories in 2017. So I guess it was a big deal that a sports executive was talking about this, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, so, so Darren reaches out. And in fairness to him, it wasn't like just opportunistic, like, oh, a sports reporter just wants to get a story. He was like, hey, man, I read your story and I rarely stop and read content, let alone something that's going to take me that freaking long to read. So <laughs> give me a do. 
But he's like, I just want to let you know that if I was in the room with you, I'd give you a hug and say, I'm happy that you're still here with us. So I knew that he was a good guy. He took me out to dinner afterwards and, and thus, you know, formed our relationship in terms of the way that we've been working together. But, um, the, uh, you know, the reaction from the story and those 400 people that had reached out to me was I got this, this range of reactions where it, I think the important takeaway for me, and this is all going back to your question of the formation of the organization, because it needs a little bit of this background, yeah. is none of the feedback that I got in those 400 calls, it's almost going to sound like, how is this even possible? None of the feedback was about disorder. So no one was calling me saying, Eric, I, I saw in your story, you mentioned that the diagnosis was PTSD. I have PTSD also, or Eric, I have bipolar. It looks different than PTSD in this way. It was nothing like that. Every call was about a life experience someone had had and then where they ended up in terms of feeling symptoms, you know, uh, uh, the way to derail their life, et cetera, either was still derailing their life or had in the past and they wanted to say that they could relate. And so the range was everything from on the far end, like a very traumatic event. I had a father call me and said he lost his child to SIDS, <clears throat> sudden infant death syndrome five years ago, right? Like the worst thing that probably can happen to someone in the world, the loss of a child, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, and, and, and I say the worst thing that could happen to someone, and now I'm saying the other end of the spectrum, almost making it seem like, oh, this isn't that bad. But when you hear it for a second and then you, you process it, you'll understand why I'm showing the range here is that it could be as bad is that this woman called me, she's 32 years old. She'd been married for seven years. So she got married at 25. She's like, Eric, I have two beautiful kids, handsome husband, white picket fence. We have all the money we could need, financial stability, but I've woken up for the last 10 years from the time I was 22 with this pit in my stomach because I broke up with my boyfriend who I was with for all four years of college. And we had to make a decision whether or not we were going to go on and have a life together. And I made the decision of was, he wasn't the right person for me, but that eats away at me every day, whether or not he was the right person or not, no matter how much I love my husband, because I was with him first and I made that decision to pull away from that. And, and so when I say the range, most people will say, well, of course the person who lost a child, that's way more traumatic. But the important thing for everyone listening to understand is sometimes the situational things that happen in life that even we're in control of that we make decisions on, when we obsess about them, when we perseverate about them, when we allow them to take up so much space inside of us, they can cause the same type of chronic stress and traumatic experiences, those feelings that we get from major events that happen in our lives that we never expected to happen. And so the hearing these ranges of these different ways in which people were affected, my mind immediately went to, okay, I was an athlete growing up, yet I never knew to work on my brain-body connection. Mm. That message didn't get through to me. These 400 people plus that have, that have called me and that I've had conversations with didn't get to all 400 of them because some don't call you back or, yeah. you know, get shot and reach out. But the majority, you know, the, the majority of them I did get through to, and they didn't know to get help. They're calling a complete stranger and saying, what the hell is this that I'm feeling? What, what, I, it, it sounds eerily similar to the symptoms you had. Maybe not to the same level, but at least, you know, some similar, similar types of re reactions in their body. And yet they're 
life experiences weren't the same as mine. So it's like, you've got this collection of all these different people who are going through many different chronically stressful and traumatic events, all different, all unique in their own way, but all ending up in a similar place in terms of how their body was reacting, how their mind-body connection was reacting. And so, again, my thought was like, why did these 400 people not know to get help? There must be something wrong with the global messages that are out there. When I say global, I don't necessarily just mean geographically global. I mean global from like a big picture global perspective. And so I went to all these large nonprofit websites specifically in the U.S., because those are the ones that I had heard of before, and not to throw any specific names under the bus, but people know the big ones and who they are, and I've been public about this, and, and this is not a knock on their programs. I think they do amazing work for the groups that they represent. Um, I think that they, they, they have made changes in society that are, are needed and necessary. I'm talking strictly about the marketing of what, what mental health is. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, I think those marketing messages actually move us further away from healing as a society as opposed to getting, getting better and, and, and better understanding this topic. It's funny, I was having this conversation earlier today, but you'll see how this all comes together, is I don't know that we're going to be able to change people's feelings of what, they, what, what happens in their gut when they hear the term anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD, mental illness, right? But I do think people don't know what exactly mental health, mental wellness, mental fitness means. Mm -hmm. So that means we've got this opportunity with terms like mental wellness, mental fitness, mental health, where people are, does that mean mental illness? Does it not? I'm not. So, so the, the stigma of mental health is only there because people don't know yet. It's not because they've actually solidified and formed the opinion yet. So, you know, I, I started to, to go to those nonprofit websites and take a look. And the three pillars, I'll call them, or the, the, the three tenets that, that were, were part of each of these websites that were consistent across all of them, again, I thought from a marketer's perspective, actually move us further away from understanding this topic and healing as a society. So, Pillar tenant number one was they all started with the stat one in five people are mentally ill, which begs the question, what are we telling the other four and five people, 80% of society, which is the majority of society. That would be like in a physical health standpoint, basically telling people, if you have heart disease, diabetes, or cancer, worry about your physical health. If you don't, it's okay. And until you get diabetes, heart disease, and cancer, then we'll work on it and, and we'll help you, right? Right. Think about how backwards that is. Um, and, and I know that's not their intention, but that's what that stat does, right? That stat does that because people equate mental health and mental illness still, unfortunately, and we have to, we have to help better educate that. And so they, they say, well, I'm not one of those people, right? And I was, I was guilty of that myself. Like I didn't, I didn't know what PTSD meant really, you know, so I didn't know that my life experience had impacted me. So that was problem number one. Problem number two was, you know, it becomes a copycat game in, 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 in kind of the advertising world, especially if you don't have an advertising agency, which many of these nonprofits either do or don't, but, but if they do, they're not like Wyden Kennedy, right? They're not coming up like on retainer with these ridiculously clever campaigns all the time. So you know, the, the idea was there's this thing called stigma out there. So 
every single organization was putting an action word in front of stigma. So it was like, stop the stigma, stop the stigma, erase the stigma, break the stigma. Mm. If you and I formed an organization called, you know, the Jake and Eric organization, well, let, let's keep our names out of it for a second. We called it the Grateful Organization, like, like that's on the shirt, right? So we formed the Grateful Organization, and we are uh, representing a group of people, right? And we put a message out there from the Grateful Organization that says, stop the stigma, stop the stigma, right? Eric and Jake, as the people behind that brand, just like these large organizations have people behind their brand, mm-hmm. are telling the rest of society to stop, stomp, and erase the stigma. That might seem like it's a positive message, right? Great, let's get rid of this thing that's stigmatizing. Let's, let, let, let's squash it completely. But there are people on the receiving end of that message. And that's what people have to understand when they come up with these campaigns is there's a personal tie to that. If you're hearing stop and stop the stigma, stigma means that there's someone who is pointing the finger, forming judgments, making decisions about another group of people. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're on the receiving end of that message and you don't know what this mental health thing is, and you know that people from, from these organizations are saying, stop doing this, stop doing this, erase doing this, what does that tell you? That tells you I might be part of that group or my friend might be part of that group that is doing the stigmatizing, right? Now, does that make you say, oh, I should stop doing that then, right? Like that's not human nature. Right. Human nature is to stop doing things towards other people when you feel a common bond and a connection towards them. Like it, it, the example that I give is if you and I went out into your kid's schoolyard, as much as we're taller than these little humans right now, if we went out there and we were like, hey, stop bullying, right? And that was our only message to them. The kid might get scared for a little bit that day and then would come back to school when we're not there the next day and be like, hey, I'm going to go right back to bullying and probably right. bold before to do it, right? So, so, so the campaigns were, and, and are, I shouldn't say were, I mean, we, we're in the middle of Mental Health Month and, and you see Stop Stigma and Stop Stigma all over the place. So, so still 2020, we're still doing the same thing that we've been doing for the last 20 years. Um, and then the final piece was all the celebrities that were sharing their stories it's kind of taken this evolution, but, but I think in most cases, unfortunately, the evolution of the way in which celebrity has been used also hurts mm. the message in terms of getting people to come together. Because first, the, 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 the story was shared by the paparazzi and, and, and by the tabloid media taking pictures uh, with the paparazzi and then finding that someone was in a treatment facility. And so the story became... Britney Spears has depression, shaves her head, right? Lindsay Lohan has anxiety, dresses like a hot mess, okay? Mm. And, and okay, so, so you had these organizations who are like, well, we don't have our own in, endorsers, like on the celebrity side of things, but if we can show that Britney Spears has depression, just like anyone else in the group here, that's a good thing, right? And they would, they would put Britney Spears as, as part of the one in five. But if the erratic behaviors of shaving your head and dressing like a quote hot mess are the examples of what mental illness is, let alone mental health, again, you're moving people further away from understanding this topic, right? And so who's going to raise their hand and say, that's me. Now take it to like even, you know, 2017, 2018, this is no disrespect to Kevin Love, but I'm going to, I'm going to put it out there just so, you know, if he gets this or he hears or he knows it, or, you know, we run in the same circles because the NBA stuff, I go around to colleges 
And I remember Kevin Love as being this great player at UCLA and this, and this great player with the Minnesota Timberwolves. And the kids who are in college now know him as kind of like a role player with the Cleveland Cavaliers, right? So when I, when I put up the slide and I show all the different celebrities that have talked about mental health, and I say, what words come to mind with mental health when you think of Kevin Love? And they say, anxiety, panic attack, ran off the basketball court in the middle of the game. How does that help us come together, mm-hmm. right? That's not, oh, grew up in a difficult, I'm not projecting this on, on, on Kevin, but I'm just saying like the background, right? What's the story that led to that we can all relate to? What is the common life experience? And why aren't we leading with that? And the reason we're not leading with that, and this is, now I'm going to take Kevin out of it for a second. I'm just going to talk about celebrity world in general, is it's more salacious and you get your name out there more when you share the disorder label and then something crazy that happened to you. That's, you know, if you want to sell more albums, um, uh, for your, for your next, uh, uh, EP release, you know, you're, you're, you I'm, I'm probably using the wrong music terms here, but, um, you're gonna, you're gonna put salacious terms out there, you know, and you're gonna say like, because I went through this, my next album is going to be hot. Right. Hmm. And by the way, the tabloid media is still sharing the stories the way that they want. So a guy whose work I really respect, he's actually getting out there a lot the last couple of days, Hayden Hurst. Um, from Atlanta Falcons, um, works in our alliance. He he's in his prime, like he he's in his third year of, of being in the NFL. He has to earn a contract every year, and he's sharing his story. He's sharing the background of what happened. He's sharing growing up in a household where suicide was prevalent in his family. He lost two people that way. He's he's talking about how difficult it was to open up and share his own stuff. That's the stuff that's relatable to people. Now, how did TMZ take that story that he shared in the Baltimore Sun? They wrote their headline that said, NFL player slices wrists in college, right? That's not helpful. So so you combine all those things and you ask, how did we end up at the same here and then we're all a little crazy, is we first had to create a brand that, uh, communicated mental health on a continuum, that it's something that we are all a part of. So they we're all a little crazy while, you know, you're going to have your staunch, you know, mental health advocates who are going to say, you can't use that term crazy in a, in a, in a mental health uh, name. Look, I'm using a word that we use in everyday conversations. Like Jake, your, your shirt looks crazy good. Yeah. Your hair styled crazy great today. Our world is acting a little crazy today. In none of those three examples, and am I using the term crazy to mean your shirt looks mentally ill, right? Yeah. I'm using it as a way to describe, you know, the, 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 the shirt in a, in a bolder way than what it currently is. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us can relate to having been a little crazy at different points in our life because it's our idiosyncrasies mm-hmm. of who we are as people. Like, you know, like my dad washes his hands incessantly. That's probably OCD. But like, because of that, like there's a quirk that I have with him where I yell at him for doing it. And that's what makes us individual and unique. And that, that's not, that's not a, anything that is downplaying it. That's, that's, that's trying to bring us all together. So that was the umbrella name of the organization. And then Theo, who I know you had on the last podcast. So the, the fascinating thing about the same here story is so I get on the phone with Theo for the first time. This is, again, middle of 2017. This is before the Harvey Weinstein story had broken. Okay, so, so if you think about the serendipity, this timing, it's friggin' incredible. Mm. So Theo is telling me his story for the first time. I, I'd never heard it from him. I'd, I'd read it. 
And he's like, Eric, he's like, when I shared, you know, his deep voice, like when I shared my story, um, you know, and I go to Canada and there's a line of people, uh, 400 people to sign my, for me to sign their book. And I see a guy out of the corner of my eye who looks homeless, who's got a flat brim, you know, hat over his head and, and, and not trying to look at anyone, you know, and, and feels like the rest of us where when you're a little obsessive and thinking, you're like, who is that person? You can't get them out of your mind. Mm. And the person comes up to him in line, puts the book down, looks him in the eye and says, me too. And when I heard that, like, and still every time I tell that story, I get chills, even though the Harvey Weinstein thing now has been out there for so long, right? Because the reason why I get chills is because when he said me too, Theo, and he told me the story, I wasn't thinking in the context of sexual abuse specifically, because that was Theo's story, right? To me, me too meant many other things, right? It meant that through two words, you could communicate with anyone, thousands of words just in those two words. So I jumped out of my seat. I was like, Theo, do you realize how, how, how impactful that was? He's like, oh yeah. You know, like the way Theo talks, like, yeah, yeah. of course I like, that's why I've been doing what I've been doing for the last 10 years of my life because of those two words, right? So I go back and I'm like, look, I was like, we need a symbol that shows that, that like through just a symbol we can share with everyone that like we're all in this boat together because we all go through shit. Mm -hmm. So I go to the, like my mind just takes me to the American Sign Language website. I don't have a connection to anyone in my family who's deaf. I, I it was, it was just symbolism like okay i i think we need to show something that transcends any type of barriers that is a sign that's universal that people can see and understand what it is and and what i thought about what was so strong about this sign is that you're making a motion as you're doing it number one but also people can see that your thumb is at your chest and your pinky is pointed out the other person so it's it's such a unique sign that like you don't have to read so much into it yeah because you see that it's showing a connection between the two of you so i i share that sign with theo he's like yeah run with it man go ahead and so so this thing that we're doing with mental health was going to be me too and then like a week later uh harvey weinstein story breaks and now the me too movement had been around i think since the 60s is when it was around um but it obviously didn't have the prominence that it had because of social media mm -hmm. until the harvey weinstein story broke and then so many people came out with their me too story and so I, I went back to Theo and I was like, uh, probably want to name this something a little bit different just because, you know, the message that we're trying to say is we all go through challenges, whatever that challenge is. If Me Too is about sexual abuse, specifically man or woman, um, we should differentiate so that, so that people understand what we're saying. So I look up the synonym for, for Me Too in the American Sign Language uh, uh, Dictionary and it's same here, which again, serendipity, there's a lot more alliteration you can do off an S than you can do off an M. So same here schools for K through 12, same here service for servicemen and women, same here sports, right? We just lost same, we just launched same here site for psychologists to all come together and, 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 and have a database of people that treat integratively. And so, you know, the, the, it's, it's just interesting how you, you know, and that's, that's like one tenth of the ridiculousness of the stories that have happened. Yeah. and the way things are out. Um, but, but yeah, that, that was, that was the background to creating the same year. And then, you know, the final piece I'll just say, cause we, I could talk about this forever, but I, I don't want to bore your listeners more is, <laughs> is so, so the idea with Theo, which then became the idea with all these other folks that I started talking to was we, we have to share our stories with the sign 
and we need to show everyone else in the world that we are with them. Mm. What I mean by with them is there's there, just because you're celebrities doesn't mean that your story takes prominence over the everyday person mm. and that there's actually a lot of similarities between your story and the everyday person. And why is Theo after being raped 150 times by a male, let's call it, um, you know, parental figure. Um, why is he an NHL potential hall of famer and some guys living out on the street who was raped 150 times simply because Theo had incredible God-given talent mm -hmm. on the ice along with determination. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong there. Right. Like there's certainly that piece of it, but you look at the circumstances of what makes someone a borderline hall of famer who hopefully will get in to someone who is out on the street and, and it can't make ends meet, but they had the same experience. They had an older figure in their life rape them multiple times that caused that trauma. That's where you see the human condition is so connected and we all go through so much shit. And that's why, why Theo's story is so valuable. So the key was let's get everyone to not just share their diagnosis label. And in many cases, some of them don't have a diagnosis label. Let's get them to share their stories. Yeah, yeah. Wow, man. Uh, just, just incredible stuff. What an, what an incredible journey. And, and, and I, I think back to the first time we spoke over the phone. You know, I was, I was in uh, Norway. And, uh, and I was just thinking about, I think it was right around maybe the time that, you know, DeRozan and, and Kevin Love's stories came out, uh, roughly right around there. And, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't even read them. But... But, but, but my thought around it was, okay, this is great. This is powerful stuff, right, that we've got major league athletes coming out with their stories. But it's my belief that the disconnect here is going to be the simple fact that these major league athletes, we've, been, we've put on pedestals. So you think whenever they make mistakes, we think, how in the hell can this person do that? Like, you know, I looked up that you were my hero, right? But again, they are human, right? So, but again, I think the disconnect is coming from the fact that these people have millions and millions of dollars, right? So you got yourself an everyday person that might read this story and be like, oh, well, well maybe me too, but, right? But, well, they've got a million dollars or $10 million in the bank account. So they have, you know, the ability to go out and seek professional help that, you know, I don't because I'm working at McDonald's or I'm working at Denny's things like that, you know? So that's kind of like the point around this podcast. And, and I believe with the movement as well is to to maybe bring that disconnect down to a closer level so that again, the global population can have a healthier and uh, understanding of mental health. You know what I mean? Well, I'll add something to the, the million dollars thing. Uh, one is I think you can normalize the million dollars thing if you share your story in a vulnerable way mm -hmm. that shows people, like Derek Anderson is on our alliance. He does an amazing job of this. He says, we're all carrying a bag of clothes. That's like our hamper on one hand, right? And he said, that bag of clothes doesn't get lighter as life goes on when we do nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, many professional athletes have this chip on their shoulder because their bag is so heavy that's driven them to, to, to work even harder, right? Grew up in difficult, difficult circumstances or whatever it is. So he said, okay, picture this heavy bag on one hand and then picture you're holding out the other hand and you're given whatever it is at whatever point in your life because you're a great athlete. You're given the diploma because you, you get a free scholarship, free scholarship. You get a scholarship, and I know that'll even change more. They'll get the, the, the college athletes will get paid, but you get this diploma for, for being an athlete, right? Hmm. 
then you go on to the next level and someone gives you 3 million, 5 million, 30 million, whatever the number is, he's, he's keep showing that bag. And he says, guess what? That bag's not getting any lighter. He said, when you're going on the court, that bag's just as heavy. When you're going out and, and meeting friends, that bag's just as heavy. The only way to make that bag lighter, no matter how much money is in this hand, is to reach into that bag to grab those clothes out, to put them in the washer, then put them in the dryer, then fold them up, then put them away on, in, on your shelf or in your, in your dresser. And I think that's such a great analogy because you're right, there is this disconnect from athletes, but if athletes explain, because, because, because the, the perception of athletes is because they make millions of dollars, when they go out on the court and they perform, or the ice when they perform, or the field when they perform, people are like, oh, they have everything, right? Like, like nothing affects them. That's piece number one is, is showing the vulnerability of the story that breaks that perception down. The other piece is, um, you know, we're, we're trying to say, figure out the, the exact right way to say this is, let me, let, we'll get, we'll get back to that piece with the, if you don't mind with, with the, with the athlete portion, because there's, there's a different way I want to explain it um, that I think will be helpful in terms of like showing an analogy outside of just the, the, the payment piece. Yeah. Uh, this is what I was going to say. The, the, so, so you see Kevin Love come out. You see DeMar DeRozan come out. You see Robin Lerner come out. Yeah. You see what is society's perception of that? Oh, well, if one in five, again, go, let's go back to the baseline of what people understand because of the messages that have been out for so long. Well, if one in five people have mental illness, then it makes sense that some of these athletes are going to have mental illness. Yeah. They're part of the one in five category. Meanwhile, I did an event with Robin. You would have laughed your ass off at this just because you got the similar type of humor as him. Yeah. He's getting interviewed and someone goes, Robin, do you think other guys in the locker room deal with some of the stuff that you do? And he just, he like he makes yeah. a comment, right? Or a, a noise like that. And he goes, oh, you mean the guy in the locker next to me who taps his stick seven times in the left corner of his locker, always seven times before he comes out on the ice, that the coach calls his routine, but that's actually OCD? Oh, that guy. And the young kid who comes up from the, from the minors who was just tearing it up in, in, in OHL or AHL, and then they come onto the ice, and the coach, you know, for the first 10 games, they can't score, and the coach says, oh, that's early game jitters. Yeah, that's called performance anxiety. You know, and, and, and so the point is, he's not trying to project mental illness on everyone. Mm. That's, I think that's what his takeaway is. His takeaway is we are all affected by this stuff. All, all these people are the Kevins, the Mars, the, the Robins, the, the Haydens. They're the early people who are the bloody ones who go through the wall, who get, you know, some of the stares or some of the comments because they came out. But what you're going to find is, there's a story that everyone has. Mm -hmm. It's just that the rest, of the, the rest of these folks aren't confident enough yet in, in how it might affect them. Look at what happened with that young tennis player, um, uh, uh, Coco, uh, highly ranked. And, and she goes on a, a friend of ours, Noah Rubin, who's got a program behind the racket. And she, she, she shares that she felt depressed when she was 13 friggin' years old on the, mm -hmm. on the tour, okay? She's now 15 or 16. I forget if it was two or three years uh, afterwards. The story, she's telling the story post, post the event of, of being 13 years old. And she uses the term to depress, to, to, to describe how she was. 
her dad immediately comes to, to, to the media and says, this is not a child that was ever clinically diagnosed. This is not a child that's ever been to a doctor. This is not a child that's ever taken medication. She was throwing that term out there just as, you know, an everyday term. She is not depressed. Why is he doing that? And in fairness, in fairness, I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger at him. And I've talked with Noah about this is she was, he was doing it because in today's society, you will lose endorsement deals if you find out that you are depressed. In Robin's case, he's only getting one-year deals despite having top 10 goalie stats because he shared that he is bipolar. The dude, like, what more does that dude have to show given that he has had top 10 stats the last three years? He's been on the straight and narrow. He, he showed that he had bipolar and tried to self-medicate because he didn't know any better, which is why he was able to, he's not able to perform early in his career as consistently. He ends up going to get treatment. He ends up getting the treatment that he needs, learning how to control what he's going through. And he's been the model citizen and a great locker room guy for the last three years as he's performed. And yet it's a risk to sign him for a long-term deal. But the guy that tore his ACL and is playing on a, on a surgically repaired knee, that person's not a risk. We'll give them a five-year deal. It's absurd. Yeah, no, it is. And, and when I think about like, you know, athletics and, and just people in positions of power in the world, I just don't feel like, again, there's that good understanding of, of everything you're talking about. Again, that it's, it's not necessarily things that we're born with, right? It's these life experiences that take place to us, uh, take place, right? That we experience that happen to us. I wasn't born with my sexual abuse, but I was sexually abused for two years, right? I've got images right here in my mind that I could share. I just don't find it necessary to share the images, the taste I still have in my mouth, you know, like that's not necessary, but you know, I, like what I wanted to go back to you know, the million dollar thing that you had talked about again, that's yeah. disconnect. But what I always say is just because they have the millions of dollars, it doesn't make them any less human or anything. And, and in terms of sports just imagine how it brings everybody it brings the whole world together right and then you think about at the major level these players are under the microscope every single game the whole world is watching them and imagine if they have a bad game right um and some players don't know to just stay away from reading the articles to stay away from that stuff so many players read that stuff well now this person's dealing with depression or dealing with anxiety and now they're reading these articles that say man he poor poor performance what do you think that player is feeling you know um, so it's just, yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Well, the sports thing ties into what you're talking with the business leader thing, because I think like the last dance just showed us a peek into like the best athlete we've ever seen in our time, Michael Jordan, right? From a performance standpoint on the court, if you don't know the person behind Michael Jordan, you think this, he is literally like, like nails, like nothing, nothing shakes this guy at all. Right. But he showed his vulnerability in his private life and how difficult it was to deal with this stuff. He was still able to perform, right? So, so now, before there was the age of social media, before there was so much insight into what goes on in these guys' lives or girls' lives, there was this thought, and I think it was a, a fraternity sorority thing amongst the athletes of, let's not allow fans to know that we get affected by this stuff. Mm. Like, we can't show that because if we do – they're going to get on us and rile us up even more, right? And what you started to see happen by Theo sharing and people who are retired sharing, but again, now even people like Hayden um, and Robin sharing as they're playing is that, to your point, they are humans and it does affect them, right? Even though they can play at a really high level, 
that doesn't mean that it doesn't impact them in some way. It could impact their play. It could not impact their play, but it, it, it impacts their overall health. Okay. Right. And, and so, so the reason why I'm saying that ties to the business side of things is there was this aura for a while about athletes of untouchable, unshakable, can't get to them. Guess what business leaders like to be viewed as? Yeah. Teflon Don, like, you know, like I, you, even I feel bad for women who have to act a certain way like a man to get a CEO position. When I say like a man, I'm purposely being very stereotypical there because I think some of the values that women can bring or have a little bit easier time in communicating things like being a little bit, you know, uh, more comforting and, 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 and showing a, a little bit more of uh, a, a sensitive side. That's very, very important, I think, to some organizations to, to, to have that. Yeah. And, and, and you'd love to see leaders, male or female, to be able to do that. You know, um, uh, when we work with, with companies, we have a senior safe office program. And it's like one of the things we work with with the C-level executives is how do you balance this vulnerability with maintaining this position of authority? And that's needed. You can't walk around the office being like the only way to the top is nose to the ground, grind it out. Everything's perfect. Nothing ever affects me. You know, you, you know what you're creating there in that culture? You're creating a culture of burnout of your employees who can't produce at a high level because they think that's their way to the top. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'll think back to, to this podcast that I did uh, a year and a half, two years ago, talking about, again, you know, mental health and sports. And I just believe that it would just be so powerful if in, in, a, in a locker room, let's just say, and then also connect it straight to business. Again, there's so many things that I feel like I've learned through sports that I'm going to be able to take with me in the next chapter of my life, you know. Um, but again, let's connect it in the locker room or in the business room at the beginning of the year, say January 1. The whole business, the staff, or let's say 10 members of the staff, we all come together. And in the locker room, in preseason, we're all in there, right? And all of us, just we open up the conversation about maybe some things that we're dealing with away from business, away from the sports. And I think through that, we would be able to create a culture where we don't feel so alone. We Maybe we don't get burned out because we can see our, our, our teammate or our colleague over there, maybe their head's down and they're experiencing some of the same stuff as we. And I disbelieve the culture is just going to be so much more different where people are excited to show up to work. Maybe it's still not a job that they love per se, but it's a different culture in there where it's not so much of a job any longer. It's a, it's a place where we can go and connect. And I think that's what people want, right? Is connection, but there's so much disconnect in the world, especially around mental health. Yeah. That we, we, uh, you know, we don't, we have to teach, unfortunately people how to open up because it's not natural for them right now. But what, what, what's coming second nature to you in terms of, of course, this makes sense for us to get in a room together on January 1st to do this. Um, where my mind was going when you were saying that is like, everyone was, pat, you know, how do we measure pr progress? Like everyone was patting each other on the back in the sports world when the NFL made the decision that. Uh, mental health professionals required for every team for the players. And then the NBA followed suit. And it was, I think, I think it's, if I know it correctly, it's, it's a psychologist and a psychiatrist, right? Mm -hmm. But look no further than reading the Ben Gordon article in the players tribune, the player who played con and then the bulls. Um, he, 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 he tells, he explains the bias of a player 
directly firsthand experience. And he says, what is some white woman, older white woman in glasses going to tell me about my life that I don't already know, right? So to, the reason I'm, I'm giving that background is to say these players still come from this era because we all come from this era of what is a doctor going to do for me? You don't, a doctor doesn't do much. It's just a tool unless you've changed the culture to understand what a doctor does for you. Mm -hmm. So it's like, and, and I, I made this analogy when I've talked about the Parkland school district before, because I've had friends who were in that district and I was contacted by one of their PTA members. And the initial reaction was we're going to hire more counselors. Mm. Well, again, the kids aren't going to go to the counselors unless you explain to them what it means. Why are they doing this? What the life experiences, how does this build up inside of us? Why is talking important? What does it do for our system? Mm. Look, athletes, once you explain to them that taking an ice bath helps with the lactic acid build up in your body, immediately they're, shit, I'll jump in the coldest thing I've ever been in my life. Okay, great, right? Um, so if, if you explain to athletes the biology of why things work and how things work and how it makes you a better performer, mm. they're going to do it. But right now, there's this disconnect of, we have a doctor, so we checked the box, so we did it. So my push for all these leagues, and I, you know, I'm, I'm having conversations with these leagues, most of my conversations are on the executive side of things, not as much on the player side of things, just because, one, that's where my contacts are. Two, you know, again, like, th to get into that world, I think it's very much like a crawl, walk, run. They're going to do what they need to do and, and, until what they actually have to fully do. But, but with the executives, they're starting to open up a little bit more to it. And to be able to have that conversation, once you've established in a workplace environment that, and, you, and you have someone from the outside deliver it, that we're all going through our shit. Mm. And that there is no shame in that. And by the way, you're, to your point about you know, enjoying coming to work, you're going to have a, a more enjoyable work experience, let's call it that, as opposed to liking it versus not liking it. You're going you're gonna to feel a sense of connectivity. You're going to feel a sense of comfort by being around your employees, the way that you, your fellow employees, the way that you feel, maybe not to the same level of your family, like where you go, but, but in some cases, maybe even more because you're, you feel, for whatever reason, you have a kinship with someone on that staff who's gone through something similar. That's how you change an office culture is by sharing those vulnerabilities. It's not by having a speaker come in once. It's by literally creating an environment of sharing is, is, is what we're about. And it comes from the top with those share with that sharing. Yeah, for sure. And going back to what you said earlier that, you know, people don't know, know how to share or why, why, why am I sharing? Right. And, you know, I, for myself, I, you know, I've had a couple of different catastrophic events take place in my adult life that has shaken me to my core to make me realize, okay, something's wrong here. I need to start talking, right? Like that's my only option now because I went down different avenues in terms of, you know, abuse of, of drugs and alcohol and things like that. So I had those catastrophic events happen to where I didn't need to understand why or how my life was giving me my, my experiences that told me exactly what I needed to do. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's interesting stuff when you think about, think about all that. And yeah, going back I, I, so to your point about opening up, like hopefully this is helpful to people listening is when I was younger, going back to the Ben Gordon comment, it wasn't about like, Oh, like 
you know, I had a perception of who this person was or what they might look like differently than me. Mm. The bigger thing to me was like, I heard people going to therapy, but that never registered to me as something I needed to do because my thought process was, wow, I have such an overactive brain where I think about things so often. What can someone, and actually, I think Ben did bring this up in the article in addition to like the perception of the other person. He said, I'm in my own head 24 seven thinking about these things. What is telling someone gonna do for me in terms of helping them, helping me understand what the hell's going on in my brain? I know it better than anyone, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the fascinating thing. Again, the lack of education, and that's not a knock on Ben, that's not yeah. a knock on, that's just a lack of knowledge because you weren't taught it, is that you're not sharing your stuff because someone necessarily is gonna be able to take this ball of yarn and make it this nice, you know, uh, uh, thin string that's straight with no, with no, uh, no bunches. You're, you're sharing it because it's a release. <laughs> it's, it's no longer just, just taking space in his brain and, and, and obsessing about it over and over again. You literally, like I try to, I try to, uh, visualize things. So I, I use this visual when I talk about it is like, you're taking things from your brain and you're putting it on this tray, like a waiter's tray. Mm. And you're just handing that waiter's tray over to your therapist. And you're saying, you hold this for the time being because it's heavy in my brain and I don't want to hold it right yeah. now. Right. Yeah. That's what the release is. Mm. And, and, and that's a lot different than having someone psychoanalyze you and say that you had an issue with this person in your life and that's why you have issues. And let's dive deeper into that person. I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not a believer that like picking at the scab over and over and over again is the way towards health. Mm -hmm. I think the way towards health is just opening up, sharing, being okay with it, releasing it, and then, and then letting it be and, and, and coming to terms with it. And then you can get over it. Right. And, 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 and also the more you do it, the less weight it carries on your mind. Right. And then it's, it's like, we've got the thoughts in here, but what's happening is we're feeling them in our bodies, right? And it's, and it's, again, it's energy trying to move around. And if we're not speaking on it, if we're not crying or doing something, that energy is never releasing and it's just continuing to go down. And then it's going to keep coming up and keep coming up. And what happens when you can't handle it, you blow up, right? That's why depression and, and uh, people committing suicide or killing other people or drinking heavily for myself, my, I was never going to uh, kill myself like literally with a gun or something like that or hanging myself, but I would get stupid drunk and then I would go and drive cars, you know, yep. I, I could have very well killed myself, you know? So again, that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy stuff. Um, yeah. So going back to, you know, real little bit, you don't have to go too deep uh, into your story, but again, like I said, I did read a little bit um, in terms of like yep. the, the therapy and the things that you went through and the shock therapy and that stuff. So what was it that got you from that point of that type of therapy of getting into more of uh, what I believe to be the real stuff of really trying to heal from, from within? Well, the, the, so the beginning piece is when I wasn't feeling right in Florida and my, my brain started failing me when I was with the Panthers. Um, what are we, what do we learn in this country? I can't speak for the whole world. Mm. I think it's more in this country than is anywhere else because we're advertised to, with the magic pill that's gonna fix us, right? You see the, the, the sad face with the cloud above it that becomes a smiley face with, with, the, with the sun shining just after 15 seconds of taking a pill, right? So um, I think that 
knowing that background and knowing that when I had strep throat bronchitis and the flu and I took an antibiotic and I got better, well, hearing the term antidepressant might sound ridiculous, but it didn't sound so far off from antibiotic to me, right? It sounds like anti working against whatever, you know, is happening in your system. That's wrong. Whether that was the wrong way to look at it or not, that was the way that looked at it. So I'm like, I need to find the right combination. It's like, oh, you know, the Z-Pak didn't work, so I'm going to take Leviquin instead as, as my antibiotic. So I just figured I needed to find the right combination of magic pills. So the rinse, wash, repeat of that for two and a half years was going to these, you know, I'm using the term loosely, these experts. Sorry, I'm trying to control my dog here. Yeah, no these worries. Expert, expert psychopharmacologists who, who mix meds in, in multiple uh, meds at the same time who are telling me like, well, you've tried an SSRI, you got to try an SNRI instead now. You got to do a dopamine inhibitor, or, you know, you, you, or, or, you know, something that targets dopamine specifically. You need to try an MAOI. It's an older class because the newer classes don't work for you. Or a tricyclic, or you need these booster. Like I tried this one called Namenda, which is which is like an Alzheimer's drug, where the 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 it's supposed to be that like the side effects of the drug help your primary drug work better, right? Uh-huh. And when I would tell people that, they're like, what are you doing to yourself? But when you're in that mood, you don't know any better. You're like, I would just want something that helps me. I'll, I'm willing to take whatever. These other things haven't helped, so I'm hoping this one does. And so um, I tried all these, and, and, and none of them worked. So then I do the TMS therapy where they put this, um, this helmet on your, on your head, and they're shooting electromagnetic waves into your brain. Um, and you have to do that every day for what they wanted to be a minimum of 30 days. I got up to 23 days and that was the first time I ever had a suicidal ideation is on the 23rd day, it had been two nights in a row that I hadn't slept. And I woke up the next morning and I'm looking at this bottle of pills on my counter and my brain is going, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle over and over and over again on repeat. And, and you know, you read a lot, you know, I'm glad that more and more people are sharing in this aspect. You don't want to die. Your brain is telling you to do something that's counter to how our brains are wired. I believe it's actually when stress and trauma build to a certain level, there's a flip of a switch that's, that does a 180, where our survival mechanism of food, water, shelter actually becomes the opposite. That's my mm. theory on it. Until someone proves me wrong under a spec scan or a microscope, I'm sticking with it, right? Yeah. Um, but it just makes sense because the way that I, like, how do you explain someone sitting down and waiting for a train to hit them? How do you explain someone jumping off a bridge, walking to the bridge and then jumping off it, right? It's, it's more easily explained like, you know, this is why I think people do understand it this way. Oh, I broke up with my girlfriend. I broke up with my wife. I'm sad about that. I want to take a bottle of pills and end it because if I just don't wake up from this after I take all these, I'll be out of this misery, right? I think that's how most people believe suicide happens. That's not how I believe it mostly happens. Do I believe it happens a percentage of the time that way? Sure. But having felt the ideations myself, I believe it's a brain break. I believe something happens where the stress and trauma builds to a certain level and our thoughts start going down another path that's opposite of what our traditional path is, which is survival. And it's literally a magnetic pull towards these things, like looking at a knife in a kitchen and thinking that could really slice my wrists really, really uh, deeply, right? And I'm sorry for the people who are listening who might, you know, be triggered by those comments, but 
I say them out loud because when I've been to college campuses specifically and I've shared what the thoughts are and how common for one twentieth of one second thinking about being on the edge of a building. Oh, what's on the other edge? What's not? I don't want to go. Wait a second. Why am I leaning over? No, I want to go back to the party, right? Being on a train platform and thinking if I kick my leg out, my leg, will my leg kick off as the train comes by or will I spin around like a cartoon character, you know, when it hits me? Or again, looking at the knife or being in the left lane of a highway and thinking if I turn my car to the left and the other car turns his car to the left and we're both going 60 miles an hour, are we going to crash head on? Like these are thoughts that are creative thoughts that are already in our minds. And I want people to know those thoughts are already there. We all have them. Don't be scared of them. Where you should be scared of them is what happened with me, and that's why I went to the hospital, which is the next piece of the story, is when those thoughts become repetitive thoughts that your brain can't stop from thinking. That's when you have to just stop everything, literally stay in the place where you are, pick up the phone or talk to the person who's in the room next to you and say, I need help at this moment. I'm having strong suicidal thoughts. I need you to help me right now and take me somewhere. Right. That is the, that is the only way that, because we're like, we lose people like, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'll use Tyler Kalinske as an example. I know his family, um, from doing events with them. How else do you explain, you know, this doctor in Virginia who's from New York, same thing. Father comes out and says she was never diagnosed with mental illness before all these stories of these people that didn't show signs before. Well, you don't need to have been diagnosed with a mental illness before to die from suicide. You don't need to have this label. What, what suicide is, is the pot boiling over. It's the stress and trauma building to a certain level. What you were saying, pushing it down, pushing it down, keeps coming up because we don't know it. Eventually, you push it down enough, it comes up enough that it, it changes things to us. So anyway, I'm feeling those feelings. I get taken to the, the, the hospital voluntarily. The, the, the psych ward experience is one of the worst things I, I, I hope no one ever has to go through. I'll share it here just because I usually don't share it in my story because I, you know, I don't have the time to share it. But I go into the, uh, the ER of the psych ward, right? So this huge bouncer dude opens his metal door, set, tells me to take everything out of my pockets, put them in this bag right, that he's going to hold on to. Literally, there are beds like in a regular ER that, that some of the patients are sitting at. And this one dude just screams out as I walk in, which must have been his, his line that he did for everyone who's in there to keep himself occupied. And in all fairness to him, I, 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 I don't know what he was going through, but he just said, welcome to hell, right? So that's my introduction into the psych war experience. I go into this corner room where they sit me down and I'm literally staring at the wall because there's nothing going through my head. I'm just sitting there. And these two residents, which are very young doctors for, for those who are you know, studying to, to get to that next level, are, are, are in the room with me. And they're like, Eric, can you describe what's going on in your head right now? And I said, yeah, everything feels blank. Like, like there's nothing. Like if you didn't come in the room right now, I would just sit here all day, all night, and I wouldn't even know to leave. And so they're looking at each other. And it's freaking me out because they're not reacting like the way that I expect them to be like, oh, okay, this, you know, this he's, he's got that case of whatever that is. Right. So I asked him, I'm like, do, do you guys like, you know, you, you've never heard of that before. And they're like, no, like people usually have like thoughts that are bothering them or, or things that are, are really upsetting to them. Like having no thoughts at all. Like that's the first time we've heard that. Now, look, 
in fairness to those residents, that could be the first time that they've heard it. And, and, and that was just their reaction. I don't know that doctors, residents or not, should react that way when yeah. it's the first. I think it should be a little bit more, hey, listen, you know, mental health affects each of us differently. We all go through it in different ways. It's totally okay that your brain is that way. We're going to help you. We're going to make you better. But it scared the shit out of me that they had never heard that before, right? Yeah. So then I get transferred for a day to the second floor. I have my own room, which is basically a fishbowl. There's five rooms on this floor where there's a security guard outside. And all five rooms are window wall, like literally top to bottom, where they can look into the wall. Okay. And uh, the, 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 basically you're being watched like a pet, right? Like, like you're in a kennel or something like that. And, you know, the, the, they're, and, and like, I remember being like, okay, you got to do something. You got to try and try and make yourself do something. So like there was a puzzle in my room and, and, and my mind was like, but I don't even care about doing a puzzle. So you're, you're fighting with yourself and, and whatever. Then I finally, I get the, the green light that I'm getting transferred to their top facility, which is, is their Westchester facility. So my father was like, I come to find out afterwards, was like fighting behind the scenes to try and help me get transferred to their top treatment facility. Because um, they're all connected. They have different beds that you can get sent to. So I, I, I get in an ambulance. They have to take you by ambulance. It's required. Like you can't go, once you're in the, the psych ward, like if you're going to go to another one, you got to do it through the hospital. And I remember like being in the ambulance watching kind of, you know, because your, your, your back is, is to the driver. So you're looking out of the back of the ambulance. And I remember leaving the city and, and almost this feeling like everything that I've known in my brain, my life, what year it is, who my, you know, who I have relationships with, who my parents are, all this stuff is like fading, like, a, like almost like a water paint where it's like going away. Mm. And then your brain starts playing tricks on you because you're like, I got to remember people in my life. And you're like, you're, you're like, who, what's my dad's name? What's my mom's name? Like you're testing yourself to try and be this person whose life isn't completely, you know, uh, just evaporating. And so I get into the psych ward at late at night on the last admission and the intake nurse is asking me all these questions and I can't answer any of them. Like, when did this start? had no 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 recollection of that like you know explain to me what the last couple of days like none whatsoever right and, and it's weird that I remember the questions but I couldn't remember the answers to them um because I it just didn't come up maybe the the fact that I couldn't answer the questions is what scared me and re made me remember the questions themselves so I I go upstairs and uh, my parents had met me at the hospital and so this is a this is like a you know this makes me emotional a little bit like you give your parents a hug because you know, you don't, you don't like, this could be the end of you seeing them for a long time. Like you're literally, it's like you're going to a jail. And that's what it felt like going on this floor. Like the floor feels like a, a, an old school um, dorm for college, right? Like metal beds, like very septic floors, like not a nice hospital experience at all. And, and, and I laid in the bed and the next morning, you know, I'm woken up. And I'm told that the attending psychiatrist wants to see me and I go and I meet with her and she just looks at my chart. I shared this today on LinkedIn because it was part of the story of why we're forming the senior psych Alliance. And she just looks at my chart and her eyes like bug out. She's like, Eric, you've tried everything there is. She's like, your last resort is to do shock therapy. And so, you know, my, my thing was like, I wasn't at that point, 
do anything to me. Like literally like saw my leg off if, if it makes me better. But like, so I didn't mind that she said shock therapy, even though if you had asked me three months prior, would I ever allow myself to get my brain shocked into seizures? I would have said no way. But at that point I was so at the end, I was willing to try anything. The thing that scared me more was her saying your last resort. Oh. And so without any, you know, I, so, so here's the other interesting thing. There's 30 people on my psych floor, uh, 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 psych ward floor. And, um, I am the only person during the five weeks that I'm there that's getting shock therapy. So I have no one to talk to about it, to, to ask how it's going through with them. And so in my mind, I'm the most messed up of the messed up people. That's the way that I interpret that, that no one else has to get shock therapy. And so I do it. And then shock therapy is basically you get brought, you get wheeled, you have to get a wheelchair to this room and they, they lay you on this chair in a tiny room that looks like a dentist's office and a dentist chair. They put a, a cuff on your ankle for, for blood pressure. Um, they put an IV into your, into your arm. Um, they put an oxygen mask on your face and then they start putting electrodes on your brain. And I remember the first conversation I had with the psychiatrist, it's a psychiatrist who has to administer it, um, the, the ECT. And I said, what's the science behind how, how this works? <laughs> it's probably not the right time to be asking right before I'm about to get my brain shot. And he's like, we really don't have the exact answer. Like, okay. Oh. Like, he goes, you know, wh while back this, was, this, this, this ECT was developed because uh, uh, patients who had epilepsy were having seizures. And so the idea was let's induce the seizures for them and maybe it'll reverse the way that the seizures happen in an involuntary way. Well, that didn't work for epileptic patients, but some of them claimed anecdotally that their depression had lessened. Mm. So we, we, we use it as a last resort type of treatment because, you know, we, we've heard that it works, you know, from this, from this group of patients. And, and since then, again, anecdotally, there's nothing that they can show that shows the brain literally going from not working to working biologically. There's theories behind it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that it's like hocus pocus, but you know, it, the best way I can describe it is like turning the computer off. Like I was trying to do earlier and then turning it back on and hoping that it's going to work again. Wow. So I would wake up in these ECT treatments and I became like known in this ECT suite. They needed five male nurses to hold me down because right away when I woke up the first time they go, Eric, uh, you know, what hospital are you in? And I had no idea. What state are you in? I had no idea. Who's the president? No idea. What year is it? No idea. And, and it's like being woken up in the middle of REM sleep where you have no idea where you are. And so what do, what do you do in that case? If you like in a smaller setting, what you do when you're in your bed, when you're, when you're woken up the way you jump up yeah. and you look around trying to get your senses. Well, that's what I did. But imagine that like times a hundred because you have no idea where you are. So the reason why they had those five male nurses hold me down is because th they needed one on my head, one on each shoulder and arms, and then one on my legs. So that I, now thinking back to it, they probably should have just like strapped me into the back. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they were trying to be a little bit more humane by using humans and strapping me in. Um, and then I get wheeled back to my room. Um, and uh, it would take about an hour for me to come to and like, okay, where was my room exactly? And and I did that for 12 sessions over five weeks and I didn't get any better doing it. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the long story short is serendipity again, my, my mom and dad are both teachers. And so after I left the hospital, 
they they retired now and and my dad was a principal my mom was a was a um was a uh, a language teacher and so they go to these continuing education classes um just to learn more stuff about stuff right like you know when you're an educator you want to be educated yourself and you want to keep learning stuff so one of their friends brought them to this course where this woman was teaching integrative breathing practices. I didn't know what integrative meant and I'd never done a breathing practice before in my life. So when my parents told me that I was like, okay, have fun. Like I, I didn't think much of it. Mm. And my mom runs back to, to the room after the, she's done doing this thing. She's like, this woman's amazing. She's, she's got such a healing tone about her. Like, um, you know, she, she says she helps people who have chronic pain and mental health complications and she treats differently than like just a traditional doctor. Maybe you want to go see meet with her. Can I set something up? Can I set something up? And I was like, I don't really, you know, like I, I'm just, I was waiting for like Merck or Pfizer to come up with another magic pill that would finally get me out. And I was like, look, I'll try it, like whatever. And so when I met with her, that's where all the childhood trauma stuff came out about my brother uh, getting sick all those times and cancer and septic shock and, you know, all, all this, all this stuff. And, and she taught me about how stress and trauma affect our system so she sent me to this breathing course for a weekend, Monday, uh, excuse me, Friday, Saturday, Sunday for seven hours at a time. And this isn't the way that they would describe it. This is the way that I described it. I learned a breathing practice that essentially taught me how to simulate the vagus nerve in my neck, learning that by us watching and expecting events to happen. So think of that young woman who's 32 even though her event doesn't seem traumatic that she broke up with her boyfriend and now is married to someone different uh, 10 years later, every day she's waking up with that knot in her stomach, she's not breathing properly. She's like, did I make the right decision? Did I make the right decision? Now compare that to everything that we all go through in life. Is my kid getting bullied at school? Is he getting bullied at school? Mm. Am I going to go into the office and am I going to get beaten down by my boss at work, beaten down my boss at work? Like, there are infinite, not infinite is the wrong, number, the wrong phrase. There are many thousands of things that can happen to us that cause us not to breathe properly, that then change our system, that then tell our body, only focus on this awful thing that may happen because you need to be prepared if this awful thing happens and everything else goes by the wayside. So my only way back to healing was learning how to stimulate that vagus nerve. And then after 30 days of doing that practice at home, I woke up one day and it was literally like a light switch had gone on. Mm. I look at the TV and I'm like, holy shit, I want to see what's on TV. Yeah. I want scrambled eggs for breakfast. And, and people who, who hear that think, big deal. Like you want to watch TV or like, that is a big deal. When you haven't felt that for two and a half years, it's a huge deal. And so it was amazing to me to go from having nothing to having something. And I, I'm still like, would I describe where I'm at today at the same place I was before all this stuff happened? No, like I still can't reach deep emotions that I want to feel like I can't, um, you know, uh, uh, emote in a way that I knew I could before, mm -hmm. but I'm also stronger in other ways, right? Like, like my perspective is so much better. My resiliency is so much better. So, I'm still doing all these practices every day because I believe that they're a part of the routines that we need to do. And I'm hopeful and I believe this strongly that the more I release out, the more room there will be for the ability to feel emotions to come back. Right. And you combine the emotions with the resiliency, with the perspective and all that stuff. I'm happy for the direction that I'm going to be going in because that, that'll be a fun place to be. Not that this isn't a fun place. I'm loving what, but, but I'd like to get back to feeling the full range of emotions at yeah. some point.
Yeah, for sure. For sure. Wow. What a, what a fascinating story. And unfortunately we're getting really close yeah. to, I think us both having to go. I feel like we could just keep going and going and going. Um, so I, I, so that's going to be a perfect place to, to, to end it real quick. What I wanted to add in terms of when you were in the psych ward and you were the only one getting that type of shock therapy. So you think about the one in five, how isolated and alone that one person feels you're in, a, you're in a group of the ones and then you're even farther away from those ones. Right. I, I can't, I can't imagine, you know, how that must've felt. And uh, I, I'm just honored Eric to, uh, to have spent this time here with you and to continue um, our relationship that I feel like we're just going to continue to build on into the future. And who knows with this whole situation, how soon we'll be able to meet in person, but I, I, I see great things. And, and again, I just want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of your day. And I know you've probably shared your, your story many, many times um, in great detail and, and you did it. So again, here today, and I'm forever grateful for you. So thank you so much. Well, I, I enjoy telling it a little bit out of order and going into little detailed things that, yeah. I, that we normally, so you ask, awesome questions that help open up in, in different ways than we normally get to. Mm. And I, back to your point, I know you, you talked with, you know, uh, the splendid path and, and, uh -huh. and, uh, you know, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a camaraderie of many people who want to help. And mm -hmm. so I think the more we have a consistency to what we share, yeah. the more, the more, the, the word is going to get out. The word is yeah. going to get out. The only way the word get, because we don't have billions of dollars to spend, the only way the word gets out is by us holding hands collectively and continuing to tell that same story. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if we do that, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna break through. It's going to happen. It's not as fast as we like, but it's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, not as fast as we'd like, but it's going to happen. Absolutely. That's, that's it. That's it. That's going to be it, guys. So you know, don't hesitate in leaving that review or subscription. That's going to be it for, for this episode of RAV with JLN, Raw, Authentic, and Vulnerable. Any, you know, where can people find you, actually, to, to end it here? Oh, thanks, man. Um, so our social handles are all same. So same here, underscore global for Twitter and uh, Instagram. Um, our largest platforms are Facebook and Instagram. So Facebook is just same here global. So backslash same here global altogether. And then um, the website is samehereglobal.org and I, I encourage people to go to the website because the resources that they can get I don't do the resources to make money they're up there so that people can just read the stories of other people see the doctors that are available um that's 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 my gift hopefully is a way that I can position it that I don't want anyone to ever struggle the way that I did so they can find it that way yeah for sure and, and i I've got connections. You know, I played Europe uh, hockey in Europe for many years. So I've got so many people that follow me in Finland and in Norway and Sweden and Czech Republic and Italy. And now they're going to have the opportunity to hear you, Eric. Um, maybe, maybe they never would have. So I'm just, again, forever grateful. And I know this is going to be reaching many people and let's just keep on keeping on baby. And here we go. We got the uh, same here, right? Five and five, baby. Have a grateful day. Thank you again. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it, bud.